Romans chapter 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, thank you, Rachel. Um, let me add my welcome to Jeremy's. It's good to have you with us this morning. This is the second in our series in the book of Romans. We're going to be uh, working our way through the letter, and uh, we've made it uh, halfway through chapter one. So that's where we are this morning, and you might want to keep your Bible open and follow along uh, with me this morning. There's a, a small group of us on Friday who get together to uh, listen to what's kind of prepared so far in the sermon. And uh, the feedback this week was it could do with an introduction. Sadly, it could still do with an introduction in the sermon, so that was the introduction. Um, I have three headings for you this morning. What Paul wants, why Paul wants it, and finally, what difference does that make to us? What difference does that make to us? And because there's so much material uh, to cover here and uh, so many important things for us to see uh, together in terms of the difference that makes, I want us just to crack on this morning. So let's firstly see what Paul wants. What Paul wants. Look down at verse 10. He states what he wants, doesn't he, in verse 10. He's been praying about it in all his prayers, prayers that he's been praying without ceasing in verse 9, that he might finally succeed in coming to Rome. Uh, Paul, at this point, has never been to Rome. He's probably on his way to Jerusalem as he writes the letter. Uh, we know from the other letters in the New Testament that he's on his way there to take a collection of money from the Gentile churches that he's planted back to the church in Jerusalem, which is in great financial hardship. In the end, things don't go quite according to plan, and he ends up getting arrested, uh, narrowly misses being ambushed, and finally ends up appealing to Caesar to hear his case. So Paul will eventually end up in Rome, but he will arrive um, as a prisoner. Now, all that is in the future as he writes these words, but here, Paul wants to get to Rome. But there's more to that desire than just wanting to meet the church or wanting to see them face to face. Instead, what Paul wants is much more specific than that. If you look down at the passage, you'll notice at three times he tells us what he wants. It's effectively a sort of repetition of a theme with a slightly different emphasis each time. Let me pick them out uh, with you. Verse 11, he wants to impart some spiritual gift to strengthen them. Now, if you look down at the verse, you'll see that he clarifies this is not a one-way street. Paul has no doubt in verse 12 that he will be encouraged by them too. But what Paul wants is to bless the church. Uh, he has in mind that uh, his visit will strengthen the church. It will be a spiritual gift to the church, presumably as the church grow in joy and love and godly character. At the end of verse 13, he expands on that by saying that he wants to 
uh, reap some harvest among them, is how he puts it. Which I think indicates that Paul's desire in wanting to go to Rome and wanting to strengthen them and impart some spiritual gift also wants to reap a harvest in that he wants to see unbelievers added to the church as they come to faith in Christ. He wants to grow the church through his visit. Finally, in verse 15, he spells out plainly, I want to come and preach the gospel. I am eager to preach the gospel to the people in Rome, which I don't think is somehow different to those previous two things. Instead, those previous two desires are worked out in this preaching. This is the how, isn't it? Paul wants to preach because he believes that in preaching, the church will be strengthened and unbelievers will be added to the church. It's more, though, isn't it, really, than just a desire. It's not more than just what Paul wants to do. If you look at verse 14, you'll see that he says he's obliged to do it. He has to go and preach to everyone, regardless of their heritage or their status, whether they are civilized or uncivilized, whether they are intelligent or not. Paul must preach, he says. So that's what he wants. Paul wants to preach in Rome. What Paul wants? I want to preach in Rome. Why does Paul want it? Why Paul wants it? Now here our question is about what's driving that unswerving commitment to preach in Rome. He is praying without ceasing that he'll get to Rome. He really wants to go and preach in Rome. What is it about preaching that means that he longs to go to Rome and preach so much? What is it? They are bold desires, aren't they, of his? I want a a harvest among you. I want to give you a spiritual gift. I want to strengthen you. How can he be so sure about those things? Well, that, I think, is answered in verses 16 and 17, and I want us to spend a deal of time trying to work our way through verses 16 and 17. These are so important for the understanding of the whole of the book. So we're going to slow down and make sure that we understand these words properly. Let me read verses 16 and 17 to you again. Look down in your Bibles. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I tried as I was reading it to show you that there are three statements in there that are building on one another. They're linked by the word for or because. So we've seen, haven't we, that Paul wants to preach in Rome to reap a harvest and to impart some spiritual gift. Why? Verse 16, for or because. He's not ashamed of the gospel. That's his first reason. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now just pause there for a moment. I want to bet that you know exactly what Paul means there. Instinctively, you know what he means. Now you might not think you do, but believe me, you do. Just think about it for a moment. The gospel, the events that we were considering last week of God the Son, humbled in flesh, killed on a cross, resurrected in power. Paul wants to preach about those events in Rome because he is not ashamed of them. Which means, doesn't it, by implication that the temptation is to be ashamed of those events. And you and I know how that feels. We know that temptation just to be a little bit embarrassed about the gospel. You know, when someone asks you, what is it that you believe about life and death? Or, or when the topic of Jesus becomes uh, unavoidable in a conversation, doesn't your heart race? Oh, I'm going to have to say something now. Where were you yesterday morning at 11 o'clock? Oh, I was at church. You know that feeling, don't you? But for the Roman Christians, it was even worse. Being a Christian, worshipping a crucified saviour was not just a little bit embarrassing. It was shameful. 
The cross was designed to be shameful. It was reserved for the very worst criminals. So much so you weren't even supposed to speak about the cross in polite society. It was considered disgusting. You know, as a conversation topic, it'd be like kind of farting in front of the king or something. You just, nobody would do it. It's rude. And so strikingly, Paul says, no, I, I want to preach in Rome for I am not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, talking about the cross, the cross of Christ, is why I want to preach in Rome. I want to preach for I'm not ashamed. Why, why would he not be ashamed of something so shameful? Next sentence, the word for again. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's an incredible claim. I think in theory everyone would love to see the power of God in action. I mean, if you said to a friend at school tomorrow, how would you like to see the power of God? What do you think they'd say? Oh, yeah, that sounds interesting. I'd love to see a bit of that. I guess they'd expect some kind of writing in the sky or maybe some miracle to be achieved in front of them. But Paul says, I am not ashamed of preaching the gospel about the Son of God, humbled in flesh, killed on a cross, resurrected in glory, because that, that message is where you see the omnipotent power of God to save. I'll say the same thing again in a slightly different way, just in case you missed it. The preaching of the gospel, not writing in the sky, not extraordinary healings, not emotional experiences, but the declaration of the cross of Jesus Christ is where you see the omnipotent power of God to save. That's why Paul's not ashamed of it. What the Romans find slightly embarrassing to talk about, shameful even to talk about, is in fact God's power to save people. And notice to save what kind of people? End of verse 16, everyone who believes. Jews first, because I think logically they've been listening to the gospel promise for thousands of years in the Old Covenant, and also for the Greek, the non-Jew. There's loads to say here. We don't have time to go into all the detail, but notice, just in passing, that the omnipotent power of God to save does not remove the responsibility to believe. Did you see that? God in the gospel is not saving all people without any exception. Everyone who hears the message is not saved by the message. Rather, the point is that God saves all kinds of people as they believe in the gospel, as they hear it. It's from faith for faith, as he will tell us in a moment. Now, that's not because the gospel sort of gets you so far to being saved and then you need to believe just in order to make up the last little bit. No, it's not that at all. Rather, uh, belief is like the hands that receive the gift of the gospel. Believing here is not completing what the gospel cannot do, but rather it's receiving what the gospel has already done. But the gospel message must be received, and Paul will explain more of that later. His point here is that the preaching of the gospel, salvation bring, comes to all kinds of people in the preaching of the gospel, irrespective of where they're from, or what they've done, or what language they speak. As people hear and believe in Jesus Christ, salvation comes to all different kinds of people. It's important as well, though, to remember that Paul is talking here about the preaching of the gospel being the power of God to save. That's how all these fours kind of stack up, don't they? Uh, declaring the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, communicating the gospel. That is God's power to save. In other words, God's omnipotent power to save comes from the gospel, not as it gathers dust in a statement of faith, but as it's spoken and declared. God's omnipotent power to save 
is not in a youth group where it's this sort of quiet, assumed confidence of the leaders but never gets spoken. But rather God's power to save comes when it's spoken about clearly with the young people. God's power to save is not in a family where the parents believe the gospel but never talk about it with their children. No, rather this omnipotent power of God to save is experienced as the gospel is communicated, spoken, preached. There's something in these verses that's really gloriously simple about church life, right? Church is really, really simple, but it's also very difficult. It's difficult because there is something in us which is ashamed or embarrassed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But church life is simple because the omnipotent power of God is not stashed away in a cupboard that you need a special key to get out. It's not inaccessible in miracles or signs and wonders or spirits or feelings that need to be conjured up by a a music group or something. Instead, the omnipotent power of God to save is unleashed in the church as the gospel is preached and proclaimed. God the Son, humbled in flesh, killed on a cross, risen in glory, as those events, that news is preached in all its glory and meaning. God's omnipotent power to save is unleashed in the church. It's simple, but it's tricky. More of that in a moment, but the next question is why, right? Why does it work like that? Why is the preaching of the gospel God's powerful way to save? What is it in the gospel that means that it is the power of God to save? Well, look at verse 17. It's the next word for, isn't it? For or because in it, that is, in the preaching of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, again, there's some unpicking to do here. It's not super complicated, though, so look down at the verse. Let's just work through it together. The preaching of the gospel carries God's divine power to save because, says Paul, the declaration of the gospel events reveals something. It reveals something that can then be trusted or believed in or have, its, have our faith put in it. And the thing revealed is what? Look at the verse. What is the thing that is revealed? The righteousness of God. Which means you need to ask, don't you, if you're going to understand the verse, what is the righteousness of God? And how is that revealed in the gospel? Well, it's not just an attribute of God. Paul is not saying, as I speak the events of the gospel, the fact that God is right and holy, that is revealed. Of course, that is true, but Paul is saying more than that. God is the one who is true and right and just and pure. But the events of the gospel are more than just showing off what God is like. Because the person of the Son, humbled in flesh and smashing through sin and death on the cross as he rises again, achieves something. Just turn over the page to Romans chapter 3 and let's see this together. The righteousness of God comes four times in five verses in chapter 3. But we're only going to look at one of them. Verse 22 of chapter 3. Verse 22 of chapter 3. What does he say? The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Listen up. Here Paul is saying that the righteousness of God is not just a characteristic of God. Not even just an action of God. As in God acting rightly. Although that's true. But as well as all that, the righteousness of God is, what does he say, for all who believe. Literally, in all who believe. In other words, God's righteousness, his rightness, 
is in the gospel as it's preached, being put into people, given away to people in the events of the gospel as they're preached and believed. Listen, we must slow down and make sure we've understand this, understood this. If you've, if you've zoned out or the person next to you have, just give them a nudge because there's, there's nothing more important to understand in all the world than this. You know, it doesn't matter. One add one equals two. That's insignificant compared to this. Don't talk to strangers or stop looking. Listen, those things don't matter compared to this, right? This is the thing that everyone in the room needs to hear. I need to hear. Paul is saying that as he preaches the good news of Jesus Christ, as people believe in those events, as they put their faith in the Savior of those events, in that moment, God gives his rightness to them. Now that means, doesn't it, that the power of God in the gospel is not about making bad people into good people. It's not about moral transformation of individuals from naughty into nice. Preaching Jesus isn't about trying to stop everyone from behaving in one way and making them behave a better way. No, preaching Jesus is about this. It is God powerfully turning condemned people, people like you and I who know that we deserve the judgment of a holy God for all the things that we've done wrong, turning those people in that moment into righteous people, destined for a glory and eternity with him that they could never earn. The omnipotent power of God in the preaching of the gospel turns guilty people into not guilty people. And that powerful change of status, that dramatic move from being under God's judgment for sin to having his approval, that is happening as the gospel is preached and heard and believed. So that God's powerful saving action is at work as the news of what Christ has done is heard with our ears and it's understood with our minds and it's traveling to our hearts where we love it and we put all our trust and our hope in it. In other words, the the historical events that happened all those years ago, they jump into the present to transform us. How? As they are preached. It is the preaching of the gospel that brings those events from history into our present experience. Which is why, isn't it, that Paul isn't satisfied with the church just receiving a letter. Now, if you or I had managed to pen something like Romans and send it to a letter uh, to a church, we'd say, well, don't need to go there then, do I? I've done a pretty good job. But Paul says, no, I want to come and preach and declare these things to you. It's not just knowing the gospel, is it? It's, it's hearing it. Hearing it preached and proclaimed that in that action, the gospel is planted into human hearts to save. Now, listen, I know we've covered quite a lot of ground already this morning. Maybe your brain is aching a bit, but we've got one last heading that's really, really important. What Paul wants, why he wants it, finally, what difference does this make to you and me? What difference does it make? Imagine it like this for a moment. Pretend there's a global pandemic. I know it's hard to imagine, but just try if you can. There's a deadly virus infecting people all over the world. It's affecting everyone and it's killing everybody. But you have in your hand a vaccination for the virus. And the person who gave it to you gave it to you with this instruction. They said, listen, here is the vaccination for the virus. This this will save you from the virus. Take it. Take it yourself and give it to as many people as you can. What do you do? 
Well, you do exactly that, don't you? You inject yourself with the vaccine and then you get it out to as many people as you can, giving it to anyone who will take it to save them from the deadly virus which will otherwise kill them. Now, in a way, that's Romans 1, 8 to 17. Because the truth is there is a deadly virus in the world and it does infect everybody. It's called sin. And the death rate is 100% because the wages of sin is death under the judgment of God. But there is one cure in the world, one. Because in time, space, and history, the eternal Son of God entered our world as a baby, born in the line of David, the inheritor of all the promises of the Old Testament. And he gave his life on a cross in the place of sinners, smashing through sin and death as he rose again from the dead. And now in the preaching of those events, God's power is at work to save anyone who believes. Anyone, anyone, whoever they are, wherever they're from, whatever they've done, whatever they're doing, freely given, irrespective of age or class or race. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to do two things, aren't you? Number one, you're going to take the cure for yourself. Take the cure for yourself. You're going to listen and believe this message, surely. You have no other hope for yourself but to hear this message and put your faith in it. There is no other cure, none. No other source of the rightness of God. There is no way to earn what God is freely offering in the preaching of the gospel. You and I one day will stand before God. And the only hope is his rightness, not our goodness. And he's offering you that in the gospel. So you're going to listen and believe. And if you're a Christian already, you're going to keep listening and you're going to keep believing. You're going to keep putting yourself regularly under the sound of the preaching of this message so that you can go on experiencing over and over again this power of God to save, affirming you again and again, I have nothing to fear before a holy God because he has given me his rightness in Jesus Christ. I have nothing to fear in the world because in the gospel, the eyes of the one who made me look at me and say, you're all right. All right, because I've made you all right. That's the first thing we're going to do. The second thing we're going to do is speak, right? We've got to speak. We're not going to be ashamed of the message. We're not going to be afraid of what others think because this is the only cure for sin and death. And we're going to do that on our own in all the different places that God has put us, and we're going to do it together as a church. Listen, as a church, we're going to treasure not just the gospel. We're not just going to treasure the gospel in a little, neat little box or a neat little statement on our website. No, we're going to treasure the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, the speaking aloud of the gospel. So we'll train children. It's great to have all sorts of different ages here this morning. It's really important that we're all listening together because children this morning, you are not saved by coloring in memory verses but you're saved by hearing the message and believing in Jesus Christ. Whoever you are, however old you are, wherever you're from, we're going to keep unashamedly speaking the gospel in our youth work. We're going to have as much fun as we can while we do it, but knowing that fun times don't save, but the gospel preached does. We're going to keep proclaiming the good news to one another, inviting others to come and listen. We're going to keep reminding ourselves that while we might sing in response to God, and that's a glorious thing for us to do, God does his work in us when our mouths are shut and our ears are open to his word. We're going to remember that our mission in our community is not just to do good things in our community, not just to build relationships, although we must do both those things. 
But our mission is to declare the gospel because the gospel preached the good news of Jesus born in humility, dying for sin, rising in power. That message proclaimed is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So keep listening and keep speaking. Let me pray for us. Let's take a moment to thank God for the preaching of the gospel and to pray for ears to listen and courage to speak. Heavenly Father, I want to be bold enough to pray that even this morning in the preaching of the gospel, you might be powerfully saving people here in this room who are believing and trusting in Christ, maybe for the very, very first time. Lord, we thank you that you are a powerful God who changes and transforms our lives as we hear the news of your Son, born in humility dying for our sin, risen in glorious power. Lord, we thank you that you haven't left us in the dark, but that you've come in the person of the Son to do what could not be done by ourselves so that we might be here as people who are all right because you declare us to be righteous. How we thank you and how we pray for the ongoing courage to keep speaking this message to all who will listen for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to stand.